Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the surgical care of head and neck cancers with Dr. Avanti Verma. Dr. Verma is an assistant professor of surgery and otolaryngology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Maybe we can start off, Avanti, by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is that you do. Um, yes, so I am a, I like to describe myself as a surgical oncologist um, within the field of ENT and particularly head and neck surgery. Um, so, you know, as surgical oncologists, we work very closely with a multidisciplinary team and we often are some of the initial um, people within the oncology team to see patients with head and neck cancer because these patients tend to have symptoms related to the head and neck region and then present to um, ear, nose, and throat doctors who would then refer patients over to us if they're concerned about cancer. And so so in managing these patients, um, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about who exactly these people are. I mean, when we think about head and neck cancers, the head and the neck, although a small space, has got a lot of stuff in it. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the types of cancers that you deal with. Yes, the most common type of head and neck cancer arises from the lining of the aerodigestive tract, um, as we say. So it could be in the nose, the sinuses, if we go further down, the oral cavity where the tongue, lips, cheeks are, the inside of your cheeks, um, and then even further down into the throat, um, so the voice box, and even the upper esophagus, um, and um the vast majority of cancers come from these areas, but head and neck cancers can also arise in the neck, um, in the lymph nodes, or in the salivary glands as well. And so are there particular patients who are at risk of these types of cancers? Yes. I, the most common um, risk factor that is talked about traditionally is uh, tobacco use, um, smoking, chewing tobacco, even cigar use, um, but something that also sometimes goes along with this and has a synergistic effect with this in terms of causing cancers is alcohol use as well. And, and so, and is there a demographic that's more prone than, than others? I mean, is this mainly older people, younger people? Do we see a racial or a gender or an ethnic uh, variation? Yes. So, uh, Generally, as people use these substances, um, you know, there's an increased effect over time. And so the, traditionally, the majority of our patients are older, but we do see head and neck cancers in younger patients sometimes as well. Um, and I know that, you know, in the past decade or two, there's been a big rise, particularly in North America and in Northern Europe of squamous cell carcinomas of the throat in particular um, being related to the human papillomavirus. So that tends to manifest in younger patients. It's interesting that you you note that HPV-related cancers tend to occur in younger patients. Why is that? I mean, one would think that younger people um, would be in a, an age group where they would have been 
able to avail themselves of the HPV vaccine. Do we find that HPV-related cancers um, are a different biological beast that tend to affect younger people? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. The mechanisms are, are definitely different. Um, the vast majority of the population does get exposed to the human papillomavirus. I think the number is about 85%. And it does happen at a relatively young age. It is associated with sexual activity. And that's why, you know, when we speak about vaccinations, we try to target, um, you know, preteens mostly um, for the, for vaccination. But anyway, um, we've seen these cancers manifest in patients, even as young as their thirties, but traditionally forties, fifties, sixties. And that, that happens even decades potentially after they've been exposed to the virus. And and so, uh, you know, uh, certainly a good thing to keep in mind for uh, parents who may be listening to us uh, that, you know, we think that HPV uh, can cause cancers, particularly in young adults. And so it's really important to vaccinate your children uh, against HPV because potentially that can prevent a, a cancer is that right? Yes, exactly. Um, it you know it took some time for the vaccination to be available to young boys. I, I know initially it was girls because of cervical cancer, um, but we do actually more commonly we don't know exactly why, but more commonly see this in men um, late you know in those decades that I mentioned thirties, forties, fifties, even in sixties and beyond is possible too. Um, so it's very important for both boys and girls to get vaccinated against HPV. And so, you know, when you think about how people present, um, you know, we know that for many other more common cancers, breast cancer, colon cancer, uh, cervical cancer, even lung cancer, we have we have good screening uh, tools that help us to find these cancer early. Uh, what about for head and neck cancer? Yes, you know, there isn't really a great screening test that has been shown um, to improve survival or outcomes. We do, you know, now that it's head and neck cancer Awareness Month, we do, um, and I've participated in cancer screenings that we offer to the community, and I think that's great. Um, But the reality is that a lot of these cancers do present relatively early because of the uh, effect that it causes on the patient. Like you said, the the head and neck is a region that just has so much going on. So sometimes patients will notice a change in their voice or even a lump in the neck or some other change in their day-to-day that might um, prompt uh, a closer look at that. Yeah, uh, so important. Uh, you know, and I think the other the other issue is um, this is uh, another uh, uh, prompt for people to make their annual appointment to see their dentist, uh, because oftentimes a dentist uh, looking in your mouth can often find things that may make them curious about whether something could be a cancer. Is that right? Yes, that's very important. Um, a lot of patients who come to us with lesions in the oral cavity in particular, they're first found by their dentist during uh, routine screenings. So I, it, sometimes patients don't always prioritize seeing the dentist, but I think it's very important because that's how things can get caught early. 
Yeah. So uh, do you think that the majority of head and neck cancers present at a later stage or, or are we actually picking these up earlier? I think the, the majority actually do present at an earlier stage because of the impact on function um, and the, that kind of prompts the patient to, to seek further attention. Um, you know, different cancers behave differently, though. Some, some behave more aggressively than others once they are found. So we do, when we do see patients with cancer, we do a full workup, um, including imaging of the head and neck with careful attention to the lymph nodes in the neck and even the chest also to make sure that uh, we know the extent of the disease. So tell us a little bit more about the role of surgery uh, in the management of these patients. Um, Is surgery one of the mainstays of therapy? Yes, I would say it is. Um, The interesting thing about the head and neck is that in itself is not a very, you know, a smaller area of the body, but it's divided into many sites within the head and neck. And our treatment um, often depends on where this cancer is presenting. Uh, So, for example, cancers uh, in the oral cavity involving the gums, uh, the lip, the inner lining of the cheek, the tongue, um, those are predominantly treated surgically up front. And then, you know, we could consider following it with either radiation or chemotherapy, depending on the results. But there's other other sites of the head and neck that are not necessarily treated up front with surgery. Some of the um, early cancers of the voice box, for example, um, there's a a notion of organ preservation, for example, where we could treat those potentially with chemotherapy and radiation combined and try to preserve structures of the voice box. But one would think even for things like the tongue, the lips, um, that that really preservation of function is really important. I mean, because when we think about the head and neck, there's so many structures that are so vital for everything that we do from speaking to eating to uh, smiling. Um, so h- how do you do that as part of a multidisciplinary team, even when surgery is um, going to be one of the modalities that's going to be used? Yes. Yeah, so first of all, when we do see a patient um, with cancer of the head and neck, no matter where it is, we do always make sure that we have a multidisciplinary evaluation. So our, our colleagues that we work very closely with, the radiation oncologist and the medical oncologist will evaluate the patient as well. And then we have a you know, huge team of speech and swallow therapists, nutritionists, social workers who also get involved. Um, and so the patient often is flooded with a lot of appointments up front. And we do, you know, inform the patient that that's what they should expect. And then after that, we reconvene, we discuss at our multidisciplinary tumor board uh, about what the best treatment uh, would be. And um, so even before we go to surgery, we, t- we talk about all these other options and all these other considerations and the impact on function in particular. And has surgical techniques evolved to a point where either you're using more minimally invasive techniques where you can preserve a lot of the organ function and or have the ability to to reconstruct so that um, people don't lose a lot of function? 
Yes, I think, um, you know, in the past uh, several decades, there's been a lot of advances in, in both areas, reconstruction and minimally invasive surgery. Um, in the 1970s, the pectoralis flap, which is the, the muscle from the chest that was invented um, at Yale, and uh, that has been one of the, the mainstays of head and neck reconstruction. But in addition to that, um, a lot of uh, reconstruction um, to preserve function is performed by using a free tissue transfer, which is essentially tissue that is transplanted from one part of the body and brought to the head and neck region to uh, reconstruct that defect that is left behind and to help restore function uh, along with rehabilitation. And, and tell us a little bit more about the minimally invasive techniques. I mean, because when people are thinking about surgery for the head and neck, oftentimes, you know, the pictures that go through people's head may be things that seem really quite gruesome, where large segments of, of the face, of the mouth, of the tongue, of the jaw have been removed. Um and potentially reconstructed, but are there minimally invasive techniques that can address certain kinds of cancers? And, and talk to us a little bit more about that. Yes, um, there's two major minimally invasive techniques that exist. One is using the laser with a microscope, and that has been around longer. Um, that's particularly useful in the voice box and in the back of the throat, too. But robotic surgery has been a, a big development um, since the early 2000s. It's been used, and that really helps us access areas that are otherwise difficult to see, um, including the base of the tongue and the tonsils. And that's used commonly in, in the cancers that develop in these regions related to HPV. Great. Well, you know, we need to take a short break for a medical minute, but please stay tuned to learn more about the surgical care of head and neck patients uh, with my guest, Dr. Avanti Verma. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, presenting the Susan Barris MD Brain Tumor Webinar May 18th. Register at YaleCancerCenter.org or email canceranswers at yale.edu. Over 230,000 Americans will be diagnosed with lung cancer this year, and in Connecticut alone, there will be over 2,700 new cases. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting, even after decades of use, can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. Each day, patients with lung cancer are surviving thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. New treatment options and surgical techniques are giving lung cancer survivors more hope than they have ever had before. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the BATTLE-2 trial at Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital, to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Avanti Verma. We're learning more about the surgical management of head and neck cancer patients in honor of Head and Neck Cancer Awareness Month. Now, Avanti, right before the break, you started talking about robotic surgery. And, you know, here on this show, we've heard a lot about robotic surgery and the fact that it helps uh, surgeons to kind of 
get a little bit more dexterity and get into areas where they normally can't get. Um, talk to us a little bit more about how that really is playing a role and, and whether you think that that's going to become more and more, uh, you know, a technique of choice. Yes. Um, I, I think robotic surgery has been and continues to become um, more and more a technique of choice. Um, and even the technology is uh, improving with new models. The the head and neck and, and the mouth and the throat, it's a narrow area. Um, and traditionally to access the back of the throat involved a, a big approach um, through the, the jawbone to be able to see back there. Um, and and so with the robot, there's flexible arms that can go into the mouth and into the throat with a camera. And you can really see things, you know, up close and um, in a better way than than previously. And so the, this helps us with, as surgeons do what we need to do, which in general is to remove the tumor and get negative margins um, without causing damage to surrounding structures or nerves or blood vessels that are important. Um, and so I think that's really revolu revolutionized our ability to take care of patients who, who have cancers in these areas. It's been um, particularly used uh, for patients with the HPV-related cancers of the throat. And there's been trials um, and data that have shown that it's it's a, a great way to, to treat patients. It should be considered um, that successful surgery can sometimes even result in patients not needing additional therapy uh, in earlier stages and even in intermediate stages, maybe reduced dose of radiation after surgery. That's interesting. I mean, that you mentioned that uh, it's particularly useful for HPV-related cancers. So, uh, why would that be? I mean, I can understand why robotic surgery may be particularly useful in a very narrow kind of uh, relatively inaccessible uh, anatomic site. But why would the etiologic factor, HPV versus not HPV, make a difference to the surgical approach? Yes, um, I think a lot a lot of this has to do with how the HPV virus related cancers behave. Um, and so most commonly patients who develop this type of cancer actually present not with throat symptoms, but a mass, a painless mass of the neck. When you talk about HPV-related cancers versus not HPV-related cancers, it, it now seems to suggest that these behave differently. Do we know anything about their prognosis um, in terms of how well people fare um, and, and whether, you know, even whether they are more susceptible to other modes of therapy as well? Yes, um, we we do know that the HPV-related um, cancers of the throat do have a better prognosis uh, compared to the ones that are related to uh, tobacco use or alcohol use, um, and that's been shown. And even when we, you know, do have studies uh, looking at robotic surgery and and different levels of radiation afterwards, plus or minus chemotherapy, even um, the survivals that we see um, are, you know, 90% or higher. So we do know that we can treat and cure these patients vast majority of the time. 
And do we know why that is? I mean, from a molecular mechanism standpoint, I know on this show, we talk a lot about, you know, kind of targeted therapies and looking for uh, particular mutations. Do we think that HPV-related cancers have a different genetic profile than non-HPV-related cancers? Yes, I I think there's still quite a bit of research to do on this, but, you know, they, they do have different mechanisms of, of, uh, genetic mechanisms of, of changing cells and, and resulting in, in uncontrolled cell growth. And I think, um, you know, one thing is, uh, and, and it's a challenge with patients who do use, um, tobacco and alcohol is that sometimes it's, uh, it's difficult to even have patients cut down or stop during treatment. And that's something we have to you know, do extensive counseling on. So I think even those repeated, you know, insults to the the lining of the of the of the throat can also make those patients higher risk. So some of it might be behavior, but I think a lot of it is in the genetic differences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so you know, it's when you mention um, alcohol and and tobacco and uh, the fact that you know after you get a cancer, we know that these are two of the main etiologic factors outside of HPV for getting head and neck cancers. Do you counsel your patients on on stopping? And um, what proportion of people actually do? Yep, that's a great question. Um, we do, you know, the the first time I meet a patient, if that is a risk factor, um, you know, I do counsel them. We have also the smoking cessation counseling uh, service that, you know, that helps us too. So we can refer them for that. And there are strategies like nicotine replacement therapy and and counseling in general. But, um, you know, the, the success, we actually, I think quite a few patients are able to stop um, but it, it requires a lot of work, um, you know, really exploring the reasons they'd like to stop. I found that, you know, a, a lot of success comes from family members and, and patients stopping for their families who have been asking them to stop also. And, and sometimes even this diagnosis is, is a wake up call, um, you know, that, you know, this is a this can be a harmful behavior. Yeah. But I can imagine that as with so many addictions, it can be really hard. Um, and so, um, so do you, and especially because what you're asking patients is complete abstinence, right? It's not like one drink is okay. Yes, we do. We do recommend that. Um, it is hard to ask someone to stop right away the first time you're meeting them. Um, so I do, you know, say we can try, you know, slowly over time, you know, when you, when someone comes to you with a cancer diagnosis, we don't have lots of time. We, we try to move on, uh, on treatment and, and, and addressing it, but yes, it, it, we do recommend abstinence because it's hard to know exactly what quantity caused this in the first place. There's no, you know, every patient is different. Some people I think are more susceptible to even lower amounts of exposure, whereas others seem to be smoking for decades and don't have, you know, don't have a cancer diagnosis or don't present with that. Yeah. And so if you do continue to smoke or to drink, you're at higher risk of relapse. Is that right? Or recurrence? 
Yes, that is certainly true. And, um, you know, data has shown that even outcomes uh, and response to treatment are, are not as good for patients who continue. And so, uh, you know, outside of, of alcohol and, and smoking, um, are there other risk factors? I mean, uh, m- for many cancers, we talk about uh, diet and obesity and exercise. Are those things that uh, play into head and neck cancers or not so much? Is it really more the, the smoking and alcohol? Yeah, I think with, um, you know, obesity and diet, there's not been shown to be an association. I, there are some other uh, potential risk factors. Sometimes we see patients, um, for example, we, I didn't mention it earlier, but we sometimes treat skin cancers so of sun exposure uh, without using sunscreen and even um, be a history of having immunosuppression can also um, lead to certain cancers or, or higher risk of certain cancers in the head and neck region. Yeah. You know, just shifting gears a little bit, tell us a little bit more about uh, some of the exciting research that's going on in the field of head and neck cancer. We talked earlier about novel kinds of surgery. Certainly, there must be work going on in terms of uh, different biologies, HPV versus not. And one would assume that there may also be uh, trials looking at how we can best help our patients in terms of lifestyle factors. So can you kind of break down some of the exciting advances that you see in terms of clinical trials and where the field is going? Yes. So I think something that we talked about um, before remains very important for head and neck cancer, which is uh, organ organ preservation or preserving function. And um, like I mentioned too, there are certain sites where upfront surgery is is usually considered. And I think within the field at large, uh, the most exciting thing has been um, the use of immunotherapy in head and neck cancers. And um, it's been shown to be uh, something that we should consider particularly um, in advanced disease or recurrent disease. Um, but now I think we're starting to think, you know, what about using this before surgery in what we call the neoadjuvant setting to see if it could minimize the effect of surgery on the patient's function. And is that for HPV-related cancers or all head and neck cancers, particular anatomic sites of cancer? Yes, so um, I think I think basically both kinds. Um, it's it's something that's being looked at, um, and you know I think oral cavity cancers is is one area of interest too because we do the, you know sometimes we have to consider bigger surgeries and like I said reconstruction with those free tissue transfers which you know preserve function quite a bit but do also require a lot of recovery um so i think that's that's something that is becoming interesting to many oncologists yeah you know when we think about uh the move towards uh shorter surgeries robotic surgeries are you finding that that's cutting down on the length of the operation as well as the length of stay and the number of complications yes definitely um you know, patients after robotic surgery, if they're swallowing okay, can even leave the next day. Um, whereas before, when we had to do big surgeries in this area, patients would stay 
uh, you know, a week or so and require uh, a tube in the nose to be fed or even a, a tracheostomy tube to breathe and, and recover. Um, and so I think, yes, shorter surgery times, but also shorter length of stay and shorter uh, you know, recovery times at large, because even after the patient goes home from surgery, we do have regular follow-up um, and really rely on our, our speech and swallow therapists also to help us uh, with rehabilitation, which takes you know, longer. You know, so it sounds like robotic surgery is certainly uh, something that um, people should be looking into. One final question, is it covered by insurance? Yes. So robotic surgery is, is covered by insurance. Um, you know, it was, I think one of the downsides that people reported earlier on is, is the cost, but we, we know now that it can minimize the cost down the road in terms of other things that the patient might need for recovery from a larger procedure or, um, even chemotherapy and radiation. So I I think there haven't been any issues with that. Dr. Avanti Verma is an assistant professor of surgery and otolaryngology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.